Uh, hey, I want to start, as we look into God's Word this morning, I want to start with a uh, question. And uh, the question is, this is, uh, this is audience participation, okay? This is not a rhetorical question, but the uh, question is this. What do people mean when they use the term old school, or they describe something as old school? This is not a rhetorical question. What do uh, people typically mean when they say old school? Richard? When I was a kid. Okay, yeah. When I was a kid, walk uphill. Richard, I've heard you say this before. Uphill, both ways to school, barefoot, you know, you know, baked potato in my pocket to eat for lunch, and we liked it. Old school. What else do people mean when they, they use that term old school? Okay? We're not talking about the movie, okay, because it's not appropriate for church. But uh, what do people mean when they say old school? Traditional, yeah. What else? Synonyms or descriptions? Classic, okay, in a positive sense. I like where you come. I, I can tell by your faces we have some old school people in the audience here, okay? Uh, other things. What, what do people mean when they say old school? Maybe kind of tough, hard line, you know, this is the old school way. Um, well, let me give you some examples. This Friday, totally coincidental, but this Friday night, we uh, sat down as a family and watched a movie that, believe it or not, my wife had never seen before that is an old school movie, all right? That being E.T. And there was a gasp because you married someone that has not seen the movie E.T. I did, I confess. Uh, you know, we're still working on each other sanctifying process. But we watched E.T. I had not seen E.T. in 30 years, I guess. Uh, but I would say E.T. is an old school movie. Would you? Uh, and, and a great old school movie, right? Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you, Jason. Uh, as we watched that movie, and again, totally coincidental, I realized as I watched the movie, there were several things in the movie that were old school. And the, the first thing I noticed in the movie that was old school is that Michael, Elliot's older brother, as they, in one of the scenes, he has on this red t-shirt that said this, Space Invaders. And some of you over here have no idea what I'm talking about. And that's old school. I mean, we're talking Atari, old school arcade, great gaming, okay? You haven't gamed uh, until you've done Space Invaders or uh, what else? Donkey Kong, asteroids, <laughs> asteroids, Kong, Pong, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, it's not my generation, no, I know, I, old school, the, uh, the other thing that I, I noticed uh, as I was watching that old school movie was, uh, was an old school camera, and they took out this Polaroid instant camera, old school, right, I mean, you think, you know, you're, Real cool because you can take your phone, instant picture. Man, they've been doing that back in the days of ET. You know, instant Polaroid uh, photo. The other thing I noticed was old school. As Elliot's, he's trying to skip school and stay home and play with ET, much like Ferris Bueller. He had an old school what thermometer, mercury thermometer. Everybody remember this? You know, and he's holding it up to the light bulb to to get the temperature to rise right. And his mom comes in, old school thermometer. Uh, when you think about old school, I mean, there are all sorts of categories about old school. I thought uh, further, you might think you're watching your uh, favorite football team on a, on a Saturday morning or whatever, Sunday afternoon, and they have throwback jerseys, the old school jerseys, right? Hey, there, there's an old school jersey. You might uh, sometimes see uh, someone next to you, and they've got an old school phone. What are we talking about? 
a flip phone, yeah. Or it has this, you know, uh, curly uh, cord that's hooked way over to the wall, you know, uh, Napoleon Dynamite style. Uh, this old school phone. I mean, it just depends upon your age what is, what is old school sometimes, right? And uh, as I thought about old school, and I'm getting to a point here in a second, okay, I promise you, when I did this with the teachers uh, earlier this morning, I thought, guys, we got to get to Romans, okay? I appreciate all the examples, but we got to move on. Uh, but I thought about this in the terms of parenting. Anybody ever heard of old school parenting? Or, yeah, some of you are like, smiling, very big, you know, old school parenting versus new school parenting, right? There are different strategies, different parenting philosophies. Uh, this week, I, I tried to imagine this conversation with my grandparents in the 1940s or 50s as they sat around their um, dinner table and, and talked about their four kids. I imagine Grandpa B.B. talking to his wife, Doris, and, and Willard discussing the, the children and all that was problematic at that particular week, and Willard saying to Doris, honey, I really feel like little Ronnie is just really struggling, and his behavior lately is just really out of control, and I really feel like he might have some dietary or sensory issues. <laughs> and in the 1950s, right? And uh, Grandma Bebe Doris saying, no, he just needs a spank on the bottom. Uh, old school, right? I mean, I cannot imagine my grandpa, uh, you, know, you know, sitting my dad down, you know, over a sonic trainer and saying, and, you know, tell me how your heart's doing, son. You know, I mean, no. Uh, my son yesterday wanted me to take him to Walmart or 7-Eleven to buy a uh, fidget spinner. Are you familiar with this? New school, right? New school. And uh, they were sold out. Uh, my grandpa, Bibi, and probably my own father and possibly me were like, I'll show you how to sit still. <laughs> I can take care of that. You know, I, I grew up in an era uh, where I went to the elementary principal often. We got uh, to know each other. Uh, and Mr. Worley's office on the wall was hanging a paddle. You would get swats. I'm getting a lot of amens in this introduction. And uh, on, the, on his paddle, which I saw often and felt often uh, in those early days, it said, the Board of Education. <laughs> right? Old school. Old school. To be applied where? To the seat of knowledge. <laughs> right? Old school. And I can tell we have a lot of old school people in this audience. Uh, not only parenting. I mean, I'm sure in your business world, whatever, you can apply this old school. New school kind of a philosophy. I love country music. And there's old school. And there's new school, right? And some of you, you know, were outraged at the CMAs a few months ago, and you went on Facebook and you just ranted about new school country music. Um, I mean, it was, uh, you were off the hook. I was, a, I, I was a journalism major in college. I did an internship in Oklahoma City uh, at a TV station, Channel 9 in Oklahoma City, and we were old school news, uh, traditional journalism, KWTV, but the station across the street, KFOR, Channel 4, slash, you know, uh, sensationalism, tabloid kind of news. Old school, new school, right? Uh, and believe it or not, there's, you know this, there's old school and new school church, right? Uh, let's have fun with this one a little bit, audience participation. What's old school church? Hymns, thank you. What else? Choir. The choir's back here. I'm preaching to the choir, right? They're in robes. Uh, what else? 
Suits, yeah, suit and tie. No, no untucked shirt, Pastor. Uh, what's that? A hard pew, yes. And none of this bringing Starbucks into this sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, okay? Let me tell you, what else is old school church? Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Old school, right? And we even have old school preachers. Uh, and I love some old school preachers. But uh, even the pulpit, the old school pulpit, I mean, we're talking, it's a three-decker, right? I mean, it's at the top, and then you got the, the sides, and it's completely wood or stone or whatever. This is an old school pulpit um, versus the new school pulpit. You, are you realize in the church world, I mean, this is all over me, but uh, the new school pulpit is not a pulpit. It's a guy in jeans, and he's sitting up here in a round coffee table, and he's got a a stool that he sits at. He's probably preaching from his iPad, and he has his Starbucks uh, coffee up as he sits and casually talks to the audience uh, about real life stuff, right? Not going there, okay? Don't get any ideas. Um, old school and new school. Uh, I had a pastor friend who's pastor of a, a conservative, great church, but it's very modern. Uh, he he talks about how his mom, as, as his mom still visits his church, she, she can't get over it. She, gets, she keeps calling, you, got, you wall singers, wall singers, because the, the songs are on the wall. The words are on the wall. You wall singers, you know, give me a hymnal. And, 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 and this is not to disparage old school. I mean, I, I, I can remember a very specific time in my life at a funeral. A very sad, somber occasion, and uh, and as as we celebrated the death of multiple people in this family, old school from the choir loft, a cappella only, this beautiful, beautiful hymn that was one of the most worshipful things I've ever experienced in a church. And I'm here to tell you, old school is not always right, it's not always bad, and new school is not always right. And it's also not always bad. And where I'm getting this morning is that in Romans chapter 5, we see some old school evangelism and some new school evangelism. Okay, Or you might say some old school benefits and some new school benefits of salvation by grace through faith. Or as we said last week multiple times, justification by faith alone. Okay, so turn with me to Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. And uh, I've invited uh, John Bockelman to uh, read the passage for us. And here's what I'd like us to do. As John stands and reads, in honor and respect to God's word, I'd love for you to stand, uh, put your Starbucks coffee down for a minute, and uh, stand with John as he reads the passage for us and then prays for our time in God's word. Okay, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access to faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been uh, we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for the totally undeserved gift of Jesus Christ in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would live lives that would honor you, that as we face trials, uncertainty, hardship, that we would turn our eyes to you and your Son. And that as we seek to serve our communities, our friends, and our neighbors, that we would do so in grace and with mercy. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. You can be seated. Well, just by way of review, uh, last week uh, and previous weeks, I put the outline, the brief outline of Romans uh, on the screen for you, these S words. And we are in the section called salvation, sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. There it is, easy uh, to memorize, also on our resource page. But we're in this section called Salvation. We spent about five weeks talking about sin, and we'll continue to talk about sin. Uh, but we're in this section on salvation, and today, in chapter 5, we really get to the, to the part about the benefits, or you might say the fruit, of justification. All right, the title of uh, today's sermon is The Fruit of the Good News. Old school and new school. I think that's the title, if I got that right. Okay? Uh, the fruit of justification. And in chapter 5, these first 11 verses, he shows us the benefits that come to us by justification, by faith alone. Okay? The benefits or the fruit of justification by faith alone. So three headings this morning. Okay? Three headings this morning. First of all, the object of justification by faith. Secondly, the fruit of justification by faith. And then thirdly, the applications or a couple applications of justification by faith. All right? That's where we're going. First of all, uh, the object of justification by faith. Um, it is uh, popular, okay, it's common, even our culture, to talk about faith. And I would say that uh, everyone, in fact, exercises faith. They may not have faith in Christ. They may uh, be of another faith. But everybody, I would submit to you, exercises some type of faith. It might be faith in science. It might be faith in yourself. It might be faith in tradition. But we all of us, all of us exercise some type of faith. Some people just say, I have faith in, in a higher power. Or I have faith in tradition. But the object, okay, the object of justification by faith and all faith is important here, okay, and the thing that I want to emphasize before we walk through the, the 11 verses is that the object, object of justification by faith is Jesus. We're not talking here about a faith that's just a generic faith. Hey, uh, a Muslim has faith, Christians have faith, Jews have faith, uh, even New Agers or people that are, you know, 
uh, into kind of new religions. They have faith too. So, hey, it's all good. We all have faith. Faith is faith, you know, it's all good. It's a level playing field. What we're talking about here, uh, all through the book of Romans and the Christian faith, is that, that what matters most is not the amount of faith we have, but what our faith is in. And in Christianity, our faith is not in ourselves, it's not in tradition. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Uh, you can have very small faith, weak faith. You might even say, use biblical terms, mustard seed faith. But if that mustard seed faith is in a strong object, is relying upon something trustworthy, then guess what? You have a, you have a, a great faith. Because no matter how weak your faith is, it's tied to a strong object. And the, the important thing is not how big or small your faith is, but what your faith is in. Is it reliable, right? Uh, you, you get in your car, you trust it to take you uh, where you want to go. If it has three flat tires, uh, your faith, you're putting your faith in, in a very suspect car. Uh, you, you might have strong faith, but you have a weak object of faith, right? It needs help. And Christian faith is not like faith and just faith or faith in anything else, but it is faith centered in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then look at the preposition, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The faith is through our Lord Jesus Christ, or in other places, our faith is in Jesus Christ. It's not just generic faith, but it's faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. The Bible study 101, what is the therefore, therefore? Verse 1, right? Therefore, we have been justified by faith. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, it points back to chapter 4, which we spent last week talking about chapter 4. But look at just the last few verses of chapter 4. Uh, verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was also delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our faith is in Jesus and what he has done. And according to verses 23, or 24 and 25, he was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're not talking about a generic kind of faith here. We're talking about a faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. Faith in faith is not the answer. Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know the power of faith. No. The, the power of faith is in the object of faith. Uh, the power is, is, is not in your prayer. The power is in the person that you're praying to. Uh, so it's not just faith and faith. Faith is not the answer. The God is the answer. The object of faith is the answer. Uh, the gospel is the power of salvation. Romans 1.16 key verse for this book of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. Not your faith, but the good news is the power of God for salvation. Faith in faith is useless, but faith in the right object is salvation and hope and life and all these things that we'll see as we go forward here. So the object of justification by faith is Jesus and Jesus alone. Secondly, 
as we walk through this passage here, uh, secondly, we see the fruit of justification by faith, or the benefits, the fruit of justification by faith. And what I want to say here is that the fruit of justification by faith is both old school and new school, okay? There's a old school evangelism, and there's new school evangelism. And what do you think I mean when I say old school evangelism? Thank you. That's exactly the first thing that the teacher said before church. When I said old school evangelism, hellfire and brimstone. I mean, turn or burn. Are you going to go to heaven or hell? You better get saved. You better get your fire insurance. You better get right with God or else. And you might call that, rightly, old school evangelism. But guess what? Old school evangelism is in the Bible. It's there. In fact, we just read it in Romans chapter 5, and we've read it all through Romans. And we'll continue to read it. But what is new school evangelism? New school evangelism is... Picture a guy smiling real big on TV, has very white teeth, and he says, don't you want the peace of God in your life? Don't you want hope and satisfaction? And so it's not a very good impression, but some of you know who I'm talking about. But all of us do. Don't you want a full life? Don't you want peace with God? Don't you want hope? Don't you want meaning? That's new school evangelism. And guess what? It's in this passage. It's not all wrong. But in this passage, we find old school and new school. We put up the chart like this, Stephanie. Uh, old school, the wrath of God and hell. New school, human need and experience. Old school is objective. New school is subjective, your, your peace, your joy, right? If old school is kind of the hard line, then the new school is the soft line. If the old line is doctrinal and, you know, very then the new school is experiential and personal, okay? So in these 11 verses, doctrinal and experiential, objective and subjective. Guess what? Romans talks a lot about the wrath of God. And we have to define that biblically, correctly, not the wrath of you might have experienced from your father who just kind of flew off the handle, but... It's in there. And in fact, we see it right down here in verses 9 and 10. Look, scroll down verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's in there. We're not saved from our low self-esteem. We're not saved from an inferiority complex. We're saved from sin and death and the wrath of God that we justly deserve. That's old school, and it's biblical. It's true. He goes on, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death, by the death of his son. That's the cross. That's old school, the old rugged cross. But notice we were saved, what? As long-lost buddies, as good old chums with Jesus, we were saved as enemies of God. We had rejected him. We had run away from him. We were enemies. We, we were deserving of the wrath of God. Enemies estranged from our heavenly father. And he has reconciled us. And on balance, I probably need to show you a couple more scriptures about this. 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse 10. And we wait for his son from heaven to come again. 
We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jude 5, Jude 5 through 7. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It's old school. It's in there. Well, Ross, that's, you know, that's just Paul, and we all know he's, he's a bit old school. Jesus was new school. I challenge you, read Jesus closer. Jesus talked about hell and eternal punishment. If you want just one example, um, go to Matthew 20, 24. Read that later today. As Jesus says, some are going to go to eternal punishment, and some are going to go to eternal reward. It's not just Paul. It's not just a bunch of Puritans, not just a bunch of angry preachers. This is part of the truth of the gospel, that we were enemies of God, estranged, in, 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 in deserving of God's wrath. So there's a hard line pitch, and you've heard it, and you've heard the guys on the street corner say it. It's the hard line pitch. And it turns you off, and it turns off a lot of people. It would come to my college campus every semester, right, with a hardline pitch. It would stop every sorority girl as she walked by and embarrass her with a hardline pitch. But there's also the softline pitch that's not centered upon the wrath of God or man's rebellion, but is centered upon human need and experience. And they are both here in this passage. Look with me again, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Circle it. Underline it. One of the fruits of justification by faith is peace with God. The war is over. You're no longer a slave to fear. You've been made a child. You have peace with God. Now, there's the peace with God in the New Testament. There's also the peace of God, Philippians chapter 4. Pray, and you will experience the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. There's peace with God, but right here he's talking about the peace of God, excuse me. Right here he's talking about peace with God. And that peace has happened through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who hung on an old rugged cross and satisfied the wrath of God so that you don't have to endure the wrath of God who paid for your sins so that you and I don't have to pay for our sins. So we have peace with God. We also have the peace of God is the subjective aspect of that. Look, as he goes on, again, the preposition, verse 2, through him, who? Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is so much good news in verse 2 right there. That it comes through him. It comes through Jesus. That you get this access to God. 
Now think about that rich word with me for a minute, that you have access to God. And you have this grace in which you stand. A lot of times we think, you hear the word grace, if you've been here a while, or you've been in church, you, grace, right? And we typically define grace as unmerited favor. And grace, the unmerited favor of God, opens the door, brings you in the door to have a relationship with God. That's unmerited favor. That's grace that gets you saved. But grace doesn't just get you saved. Grace is what we stand in. According to verse 2, right? Verse 2, this grace in which you stand, in which you're upheld. You have this grace, and you also have this access to God because of what Jesus has done. Access to God himself, not through a priest, not through a sacrifice, not through a religious system. But you have this access to God the Father through Jesus. After I graduated um, college, did that internship at that TV station, I went to uh, D.C. and I did an internship in Washington, D.C. I worked as an intern for an Oklahoma senator. And uh, one of the things that I got to the best part of that job, actually, um, was that I got to take folks from Oklahoma when they came to visit D.C. I got to take them on tours of the United States Capitol. So because of my badge, because of my, I had access to get them into the Senate chambers and get them into the, to the House chambers. And we, w- we could watch as they were in session. And I could give them tours of the Capitol, but I didn't have the access that one of my buddies had. His access was greater than my access. And he could get me into the Sam Rayburn room where the senators would hang out uh, before they went into session, right? And so I walked in there and I stood next to John McCain and shook his hand, and I had access, not on my own, because I didn't have those kind of credentials, but my friend did, and he gave me access. He got me into a place that I didn't deserve to be. You have been given access. That's one of the benefits. You have been given access to God the Father through Jesus. He goes on. It's so rich. The grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice so far we've seen peace. We've seen joy, right? Here we see hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's primarily thinking about the future. You know, you've been in old school churches where that lady on the first or second row just screams out every once in a while, glory, right? You've been there. It happened in my grandparents' church, glory. And they're talking about the glory to come. Oh, I can't wait till glory. But you have this hope of the glory of God, the glory to come. And not only that, verse 3, not only this grace and peace and this joy that we have, we rejoice, that's the joy, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at verse 3, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the
new way of because it's enough persistence, endurance, character, and character produces hope. In fact, as we go through this suffering, guess what happens? Our desire for glory increases, right? Suffering, if, if we do it well, and this is a whole nother sermon here, okay? Whole nother three-point sermon. But suffering, if, if we endure it well and if we go through it well, will give us a clearer focus, a stronger confidence in God, and a deeper experience of God. Okay, let me say that again. If we go through suffering well, we'll have a clearer focus, a stronger confidence, and a deeper experience of God as we go through that suffering with the joy of God Because we can get through anything if we know Sunday's coming. So part of our salvation is not just justification and being saved, but it's that sanctification through suffering that God is doing, working in us as we wait for the hope of glory, right? And verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Another benefit, another fruit of justification by faith is the Holy Spirit. That comes to indwell you, that it comes to empower you and actually live in you. That you get at the point of justification, you get the Holy Spirit to live in you and guide you. And because of the Holy Spirit, you have God's love poured into your hearts. And some of you are looking at me like God's love poured into my hearts and it's because you haven't experienced it. Maybe you're not justified. Maybe you haven't been saved. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when the Holy Spirit pours love into your hearts and you experience the love of God in Christ Jesus because of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And so you have these moments where you're like, could this be true? You still doubt, and you have these other moments where, like, there is absolutely no way that this can't be true because I've experienced the love of God in my heart, and there's no convincing me that this is false because God has sustained me through every suffering and through every trial and through every heartache and every death and every form of cancer. And you endure with the Holy Spirit that He has placed inside you. Let me take you to one other place about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I think we have this. In him, you also in Christ, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. I have such amazing packed theology here. And we're sealed, okay, sealed, authenticated with the, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, this is a whole other sermon, Right? But what's happening here is, is that you believe and you've been given the Holy Spirit of promise. And that Holy Spirit of promise is a guarantee of the inheritance that will be yours in glory, right? Until you acquire full possession of it, right? You own the house, so to speak, but you haven't taken possession of it, right? But the Holy Spirit who pours out his love on you is, is the guarantee. So not only do you have the peace of God and access to God and grace and joy and the hope of the glory of God and hope and joy and suffering, but you also have God's love poured out in you through the Holy Spirit. In this abiding sense, experientially, not just doctrinally, but doctrinally and experientially of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And all of this, Paul is quick to not, he, he doesn't fail. He gives us the benefits, but he wants us to know exactly why the benefits come. Not just by faith in faith, 
not by faith and fate, but he wants us to know why the benefits come. And so verse six, he jumps right back again into the old school gospel. Look at verse six and following with me. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Hang out right there for a second. Did Christ die for us when we were strong? Did Christ die for us when we were godly? No, he says, Christ died for the ungodly, thankfully. For the ungodly. I say it like this. Christ died for us not when we got an A plus on the report card, not, not, when we brought, not when we brought home straight A's. Christ died for us when we flunked the test. In fact, when we failed to even show up. He didn't die for us when we got good. He didn't die for us when we had performed rightly. He died for us when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we had flunked the test. And then he goes on, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. And he's like, who dies for people that are your enemies? I mean, you might die for your spouse, for your kids, someone, but who would die for an enemy? Only Jesus. Only Jesus and love. Verse 8, okay? Go to our resource page. There's a list of verses that every one of us need to memorize from the book of Romans. And Romans 5, 8 is one of them. And I like it, the old school version. In the NAS or the KJV, it says, but God demonstrates. In the ESV, it says shows, okay? But I like it. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, failures, Christ died for us. He hung on an old rugged cross and paid the penalty that we deserve so that we could be forgiven of the wrath of God, so we have peace with God, so that we could know joy and hope internally, experientially. At the right time, Christ died for us. And then verse 9 and 10, we've already talked about this. Since therefore we have now been justified, how? By his blood, old school. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, old school. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his, by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And here's what I want you to hear from the last, those last few verses. Chapter 4 was all about justification. Justification by faith alone. Abraham was not justified by works. He's not justified by his circumcision. He was not justified by the law. We talked about all that last week if you weren't here. And the emphasis of chapter 4 is justification. And it talks about being justified in chapter 5, but it, 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 it ups the ante. It, it raises the celebration of it because justification is great. It's a huge theme of the book of Romans. But in chapter 5, he says, not only are you justified, declared righteous in God's sight, but more than that, more than that, you are reconciled. What's that mean? It means that you are enemies of God, and guess what? You were forgiven. That's justification. You might forgive someone that really messes you over at the office or something. You might forgive a, a, an in-law or someone that really just did you wrong. That's justification. But would you reconcile with them? Would you bring them into your home and serve them dinner? 
Would you make an enemy your son or daughter? Would you adopt your enemy into your family? That's what God has done in Christ. I got to wrap up here. Applications. I don't have enough time to do this, but we'll go a little bit over here, okay? The applications of justification by faith. Now I have too many to cover here, but quickly. Application of justification by faith. First of all, suffering. What, is, what difference does justification by faith make in suffering? Well, the rest of the world, the traditional old school religion says if you suffer, it must be because of karma. Because, because of karma. You must have really made God mad. You're getting what you deserve. You're, you're, you have whatever you have right now because of what you did previously. Justification by faith looks at that and says, I can't say it. No way. Justification by faith says you are not justified by works. You are justified by faith alone. So here's the hope, folks. No matter what suffering you're going, is going on in your life right now, it is not because you're experiencing the wrath of God. If you believe in Jesus, the suffering that you're going through right now is not the wrath of God on your life because the wrath of God on your life was poured out on Jesus. You are not experiencing the wrath of God right now. You could be experiencing the discipline of God. You could be experiencing the pruning of God. But when we discipline our kids, when we have an intervention with someone who's addicted to something, that it's always, a, it's always motivated by love, right? But you're suffering it this morning. Whatever you may be going through, and it is not the wrath of God. It could be the pruning of God. But it's motivated by love if it is. Because every moment of wrath you deserve was put upon Jesus. Secondly, not only suffering, but uh, justification by faith alone changes our identity. It changes our identity. Why? How? Because most of, our, most of us go through life, I mean, the, the default position of our world is justification by works. And everybody today wants to create their own identity and make your own identity and make your name for yourself, right? By what you do or what you want to be called or what you are. That's justification by works. And that feels liberating, feels good for a while until what? Until you blow it and you blow your marriage or you lose the sale or you get kicked out of the game or you don't make the team or whatever. And then what happens? Your identity that was built upon justification by works is just destroyed. But justification by faith alone says your identity is not in what you do or not in how well you perform at your job, not in how well your kids turn out, but your standing, your credibility, your justification, your rightness before God is not by any of your works, but by faith alone. So you don't have to run and race to perform or to become someone or to make a name for yourself because guess what? You have the smile of God. And if you have the smile of God, then all other frowns don't ultimately matter. And finally, guilt. Some of us are here this morning and you're weighed down, you are shamed by guilt. What does justification by faith alone have to say about our guilt? What it has to say is that it's gone, that it's been paid for. 
And some of you come here every week and you carry such shame and such guilt because of bad things that you've done. I mean, they're bad. But the guilt is gone by justification and by faith alone. See, the blood of Jesus paid for every bad thing we've done. And if you're sitting here this morning and we're holding on to guilt from past choices, from past decisions, what you're essentially saying is, Jesus, your blood isn't good enough for the sin in my life. Because the blood of Jesus has covered every sin that we've committed, every sin that we could possibly commit. You're not justified by your good works. You're no longer guilty. You're no longer slaves to sin because you've been justified by faith alone. You've not only been forgiven, but you've been made his child. child will you pray with me Father God we come to you this morning uh, saved saved from our sin and death and the wrath that we rightly deserve and justified by faith alone because of the grace that you have shown us in Jesus and I pray that you would make that old school news experientially true in our hearts Holy Spirit, help us to believe the gospel. Help us to live the gospel. Help it change our heart. Make us people free of our guilt and with secure identities in Jesus and Jesus alone and able to suffer with rejoicing because of the hope of glory. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.